to Stationary Adjacent, a podcast at the intersection of analog and digital productivity. I'm Justin Twyford, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Stu Lennon. Hey, Stu, how's Cyprus this week? Uh, it's very, very nice. Uh, it's been it's been an eventful week. We had uh, we had clouds this morning, and there was uh, if I don't know if you heard, but spicy contributing to the discussion. Um, the dogs are now proceeding to the gate where they're going to bark at a load of cats, which is. Yeah, Everybody has to have a hobby, but uh, generally speaking, everything's pretty good here. What about uh, Canada? You've had fires and all sorts going on. We had uh, just the wide range of the gamut. This morning, it's, well, relatively cool, 19 degrees and uh, overcast. So, yeah, Um, I don't know what's going on with the weather. Global warming, climate change, just... You know, I'm looking forward to September when it cools down a little bit. We get some lovely clear nights and no fires. Man, it was smoky on the weekends, too. I couldn't even see across the lake. The other side of it was entirely covered in smoke. Ick. You don't like the sound of that. We've had fires. Um, one pretty close to us. Um, I suppose maybe four or five kilometers. Um but they got it under control after one sort of hairy night. Um, and yeah, as I say, today has been bizarrely cloudy this morning. All right. Um, which has been a bit cooler, which is nice. I'm, I'm off to uh, United Kingdom uh, next week. So I'm, I'm going to experience a bit of a temperature drop. Although the forecast, and whisper it, looks A, dry, and B, quite warm. So uh, that's a bonus. That's good, because uh, of your traveling restrictions on luggage, you'll be wearing every outfit that you need at the same time leaving Cyprus. <laughs> well, there have been some updates. Um, the, the current Mrs. Lennon, regular listeners will know, suffers with a bad back. Um, in fact, she had a big operation just at the beginning of COVID. Um, and she's really, really suffering now. So she's currently experimenting with a wide range of prescription opiates, which in itself is scary. She's the life of the party now, isn't she? <laughs> well, either that or completely, completely comatose. Um, but yeah, she's. there's no way I can be dragging her sort of across railway stations and upstairs and downstairs and grab me back. I mean, it's just not going to work. Um, so, so I, discretion being the better part of valor, Justin, I decided it was time to open the, the Lennon wallet. Um, and obviously, I ducked for all the moths that came out um and booked uh, a hire car which we're collecting at the airport so i will need her to gingerly make her way to to the um the car hire desk and from there to the car uh, and then i'll pretty much drive her to wherever she needs to be um which then led to oh well if we're going to do that uh we may as well have you know uh a sort of proper sized carry on so that Mrs. L can have her choice of uh, outfits. Uh, so, all of the guiding principles, <laughs> the booking of the trip have now been thrown out. Um, and yes, a big away case uh, will be full to the brim with multiple options for dress for every weather, I would imagine. Uh, and presumably in the corner, there'll be space for me to have a, uh, a spare t shirt or something. <laughs> Oh, that went south in a hurry, didn't it? <laughs> well, it's just, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, look, I mean, first thing I'd have to say is that chronic back pain is horrific. I don't even have it and I'm frightened of it um, because, the, you know, there's no respite. 
Um, and so quite apart from becoming uh, slightly psychopathic, um, my wife is constantly in pain. And just the idea of me saying, right, if we really run, we can get over that flyover, up those stairs, down there, down there, and we can get the first train to... I just, no, no, this is going to be awful. So um, got the car, um, as people uh, in the UK know, and I'm sure people in, uh, across the pond have got an idea, the UK is not that big. So um, we arrive in uh, Luton, which is north of London, uh, and we need to get to Bristol, um, which is just a sort of straight run. Uh, well, I'll get properly British about this. What you do, old boy, is you, on the M1 Scythe, you get to the M25, which you take in an anti-clockwise direction until you get to the M4, and the M4 takes you right into Bristol. Well, just to the edge of Bristol, where you pick up the M32, M standing for motorway, of course, and that takes you right into the centre of Tyne. What? Uh, so it's a really easy drive. It will take me a couple of hours tops. Um, and then from there, uh, I'm going to go and see my mum, who is sort of conveniently halfway between Bristol and London, uh, slight detour south. Uh, and then from there, uh, we're going up to London where we're going to see some of Margaret's family. And more importantly, we we have a night in central London where we're going to catch a show, um, eat some really nice food and just, well, hopefully make the best of, of what London has to offer, which is a lot. Mm -mm. I'm impressed you're daring a city. I couldn't even imagine that post post COVID. I, I have not actually been downtown in a city center since pre COVID. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how I would do, uh, well, I mean, look at the vehicles I drive now, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure how I would do. Justin, I'm not taking a vehicle. I'm not taking a vehicle into London. <laughs> so I will be, um, we will be parking in North London, um, outside of the, the congestion zone and all of that sort of nastiness. Um, and uh, getting a tube into central London and then a tube back uh, because Margaret's family is based predominantly in sort of northern London. So, um, but yeah, look, I looked at um, going into central London. We're going to be in central London for sort of two days, not complete days, but we're going to be there for two days. And each day you'd have to pay £15 congestion charge, uh, which I guess is what, 20 bucks, something like that. Uh, each day and then parking overnight or parking for 24 hours was going to cost me just north of a hundred pounds for central London. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, do you know what? I think I'll just leave the hire car, which isn't my car anyway. Um, so, <laughs> somewhere up in, up in the, the North and um, we'll just get my Jeep. Uh, that sounds like a hundred bucks for parking, <sighs> hundred pounds for parking. Sorry. Let me rephrase that. That's um, a heck load more in Canadian dollars. Sure thing. Oof. All right. Uh, any follow-up this week, Stu? Uh, well, I haven't quit anything. Uh, that I suppose that's the the good news from my point of view. So I'm still podcasting. I'm still consulting. Still stationarying, whatever that might mean. And, and we're still blogging-ish. It's, it's not exactly full pace, but, you know, there's a bit of consistency coming. And, um, well, I've, I've been working quite hard, to be honest. Justin. What about you? Any follow-up from you? Um, so I mentioned last week, I went over on date night, uh, to a little town across the lake from us. Um, and this town is uh, quite, quite small. There was a thing there that I was curious about and did some investigation, um, over the weekend, uh, the slow movement. Um, have you ever heard of this thing, Stu? Uh, well, only in its sort of composite parts, you know, I've heard of, uh, you know, slow eating has been a big one for a while. 
um, slow reading, that sort of thing. But I wasn't aware that there was a whole overarching sort of movement. Yeah, so this thing, this uh, town is part of the Cityslow, uh International. And there's just a few places on there. Uh, there's a few in Canada and they're mostly out here and they're, well, how do I say this nicely? They're kind of the hippie towns. Mm -hmm. The idea behind this is uh, it's, uh, man is a protagonist of the slow and healthy succession of seasons, respectful of citizens' health, the authenticity of products and good food, rich of fascinating craft traditions of valuable works of art, squares, theaters, shops, cafes, restaurants, places of the spirit, and unspoiled landscapes, characterized by its spontaneity of religious rites, respect of traditions, through the joy of slow and quiet living. Now, I didn't write that in case you figured that out, because I don't use all those words, but um, the this idea has really resonated with me, and putting a name to it uh, is, is quite uh, eye-opening. You know, there is a move to, well, back to basics, you know, where, I, I'm not sure what it is in the rest of the world, but out here, everything is getting so busy and development and development out here means generally condos and, uh, high density housing, um, cars, uh, traffic, everything is busy, busy, busy. And so this idea of slow, taking the time to enjoy it, you know, particularly where I live, it really resonates with me. Uh, one of the things that really hits me is that uh, every Friday we go to uh, a little farm down the street from us and we pick up our fresh organic food that is whatever is grown we're taking some of that and I love doing that it's a surprise you never know quite what you're going to get because it depends what's in season what's just coming you know perfect but it is such a lovely place, taking the time to enjoy life. Um, this is really, really cool stuff. And if you haven't looked at it, I've got a link in the show notes. Uh, take a look at it. It's kind of cool stuff. What do you think, Stu? You going to go slow down? I mean, you're going to London next week. I don't think slow is something that actually works in uh, London. Well, yeah, I'm not in London for much, to be honest. I'm, uh, well, I'm going to Bristol, which is quite a buzzing city. Uh, as well, but the um, I, th I think you've got to be less than fifty thousand inhabitants to um, to get yourself into the the slow or cheetah slow or whatever they want to call it. Cheetah slow. It must be Italian. Um, yeah, I've I've put a just put a link in for you to look at it, uh, in the show notes. Um, I've got a slow watch, um, which isn't a watch that goes slowly, but it's a watch that has twenty four hours on it. Mm. Um, it's analog. And um, it's very difficult to tell a precise time off it. Uh, and that's kind of intentional. The idea being that, you know, if the, if the single hand that is there uh, is on the left-hand side, then it's, it's daytime. And if it's on the right-hand side, it's, it's, well, if it's in the top half, it's daytime. If it's in the bottom half, it's nighttime. Because um, looking out the window would just be too difficult. <laughs> well, it's, if you like, it's, I suppose, militantly analog. And it's saying, actually, do you need to know it's 12.07? Or do you, do you need to know it's somewhere between 12 and 12.15? That's, that's kind of the, the process behind it. And I really liked it. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. It's in my little collection of analog watches. 
which unfortunately don't get out enough because I've become so hooked on all the uh, the data from the Apple Watch. But um, certainly food, I love seasonality in food. And there's all sorts of evidence to suggest that uh, we as humans are evolved to sort of go for this whole um, scarcity or glut type eating. So, you know, when a fruit is in season, we can't get enough of it. Um, and we will eat, 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 eat. But then it would be completely, well, it, it would not be possible for us to eat that fruit out of season because, you know, freezing hadn't, hadn't been invented or, you know, force farming and all the stuff that goes on now. And I think it just makes, um, makes food special when you're eating uh, fruit and veg that's come right into season. Asparagus is one that springs to mind, where it's incredibly tasty. It's never that tasty when it's coming from all the way around the world and being sort of, you know, whatever they do, whatever they spray on this stuff to stop it ripening, then start it ripening and all that jazz. Um, I, I just think it makes it really, really special. And if, if, I think living next to vineyards, as you do, gives you gives you a sense of the rhythm, because you, you soon internalise uh, when the vendage is happening and um, the seasons of the wine and what's going on, when the new um, releases are available and you can taste them. I don't know. It just creates a really nice rhythm. I think that. I, I guess must hark back to some sort of you know genetic thing that's sort of built into us. Um, so yeah, I I love the idea, and I I'm all of those things. I mean, they're all quite aspirational, I suppose. But I love theatres, and I love the idea of um, sort of analog shops that are not um, no disrespect Amazon, um, just things that you can enjoy. The Camino is a big thing for me, and you're walking. Clearly, that's quite slow. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the whole idea. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's amazing. One of the things that I'm not a fan of is tomatoes. Mm. Tomatoes. Sorry, let me re let me rephrase that because I'm talking to Stu here. It's okay. I've got my dictionary with me. <clears throat> okay, good. Uh, I figured you were going to um, you know right click and fix my spelling <laughs> or pronunciation or something. <laughs> uh, it's it's an ongoing joke, folks. Uh, this is what Stu does to me in our show notes all the time. Uh, the the tomatoes though uh i just got some last week and they were funny shapes and funny colors yeah um and they're local varieties they're not just the hothouse grown mm -hmm. but the flavor of them is amazing compared to anything you will get that is grown in california or even further south but oh, they're just so wonderful with a, you know just on a on a sandwich something simple, absolutely amazing. Um, so if you can't, you know, I'm very fortunate. I live up in an area that well, at least for the summers, nice. Uh, winters, I have to deal with that. But um, if you can get local food, if you can grow local food, give it a shot. The slow movement, um, the idea of a community, you know, in is, is something that's really really appealing to me uh you know small community not cities or anything like that where you know you're different places different people just a small community cafes restaurants it's it's just fantastic and i like the idea of the unspoiled landscapes that's um that's huge for me at the moment but hey i've become well a redneck hippie i don't know how that works but anyway i'm up here in the mountains so what do you what do you expect <laughs> well 
I'll just give you a little story that echoes that. Um, when I was 10, uh, my parents brought me to Cyprus on holiday um, because they were very much in love with the place. And um, it was the first time I'd been here. Um, and midway through dinner on the first night, I, I sort of stopped the conversation by saying to my mum, what's this? And she said, well, that's a tomato. I said, it doesn't taste like any tomato I've ever eaten before. And that was when I actually discovered, um, I said local food, that tomatoes actually taste of something because the majority of tomatoes that I used to eat in the UK taste of water. Um, whereas here they really do have, you know, when, when people say to me, sweet tomatoes, I now understand what they mean. Um, and I, I think it's, it's a huge win for, for society because, you know, like it or not, all these air miles that we're all racking up, that they apply equally to your tomatoes. <laughs> if you're flying in your food, um, that's an awful lot of uh, environmental damage for actually what's not very nice. Um, I'd, I'd probably say you're better off not having a tomato in the winter. Just, just eat winter food. You got me on that one. I'm with you. Oh, all right. What's your tool of the week this week, Stu? Uh, my tool of the week oh, was, was um, well, I don't know what to call him. I suppose uh, the, the gay laser. Um, <laughs> Margaret has been trying to convince me for, well, since we came to Cyprus, to go and see the dermatologist. Um, I'm sort of quite old school British in that if my leg is hanging off, I'm prepared to consider seeing a nurse. But other than that, I try and stay away from the medical profession. And she goes very sensibly and gets her skin checked out because skin cancer is a real risk here. Um, now, given that I'm a Celt, um, I'm not very good at sun, so I, I genuinely just stay out of the way of it, apart from when I play golf, when I'm sort of covered in um, SPFs and hats and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, finally, she talked me into going to the, to the dermatologist to have my moles checked out. And part of the reason was that I've got uh, a little tag on my back, like a, it's like a little polyp thing. Um, I, it's not anything sinister. It's just annoying. Um, and I had a similar one up in my temple and every time I used to get my hair cut, um, they'd run the clippers over it and it would sort of be angry and sore for a while. Um, so I just said to this guy, um, you know, could you remove these? Um, and the whole interaction was very, very funny. Um, he's, uh, he's clearly a very talented guy uh, and he's, he's gay and loves flirting. Um, now in, in a very non-threatening way, you know, this wasn't a, you know, I'm, I'm there with my wife, there's a nurse and there's him, but he suddenly starts being as camp as Christmas. <laughs> just, <laughs> um, and I don't know whether he just looked at me and thought, yeah, you know, this guy will be game for a laugh. Cause I am, I mean, I find all that stuff a hoot. So, so we were, we were just, um, flouncing away at each other. Um, and he was threatening to have all sorts of bits of me snipped. Um, and then. Uh, I had these two things cut off, um, which was was fine. It was great. It was there, there was a small blood incident with the one on the head, but hey, never mind. Um, Ew. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. Actually, go to my blog. You can read the story. Anyway, um, the uh, the downside of that, which I discovered only afterwards, was oh oh. And by the way, you can't swim in the pool. What? What do you mean I can't swim in the pool? That's pretty much all I do. No, you can swim in the sea, but. Let's keep the chlorine out of those sort of, you know, one, one of them is freshly cauterized and one of them is freshly stitched. Um, 
Uh, so because of that, I haven't been able to go to the pool. So the only thing I've been able to do, Justin, is work. Uh, hence, productivity has gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. And so has my ick factor. This is, <laughs> we're, we're right back to Syracuse's toes, aren't we? Ah, well, there you go. You see, you, you've got to keep up with the leaders in the industry, Justin. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just, I thank God there's no pictures to uh, follow this. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you or indeed anyone else. What about you? What's your tool of the week? Well, mountains. I said, effort to the world on the weekend and headed up to the mountains with a hot blonde date. It was a fantastic night. We were up around 1600 meters. So I think that's kind of where uh, Cypress's mountains are too, right? Uh, that's, yeah, that's a good get up towards the top of ours. Yeah. Um, we spent the night up there. We did some camping. My hot blonde date kept me awake all night though. It's been a long time since a date has done that, but Coco is cute. So she can get away with it. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing. The mountains up here have really changeable weather. Uh, we went up where it was hot. I actually had to start up the generator and put the air conditioning on for Coco because it was pretty warm for her, even at that height. Uh, the nice thing for me is, as I mentioned, it was really, really smoky on the weekend. Cindy was working. Mrs. T was working. Um, and uh, I wanted to get away from all the smoke. So we went up there. The weather was clear and smokeless. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. I stayed by a little lake. I put some pictures in it to tease Stu of what I did. Um, it was, it was just fantastic, but the changeable weather came in, um, just as we were climbing into bed and changeable weather meant a thunderstorm. And we had about three hours of a thunderstorm with Coco every time it thundered barking at the weather. <laughs> so needless to say, I did not sleep well. Uh, then at two o'clock in the morning, it started lashing it down with rain, just hammering it down and stayed that way for most of the night. So not the most restful night, but, uh, I had some beautiful walks with Coco. We saw all kinds of wildlife, uh, we just, it was so nice to get away coming back. What that meant was a compressed work week for me because Monday I was up in the mountains, um, and Tuesday. I'm back at work and I've lost a day. And I tell you, a compressed work week, you know, we've discussed this four day work week before. I have been working so productively to get caught up for that last day. It's been amazing. I've just actually felt so engaged with work because I've just had to do it. I've had to buckle down and, and work hard. And you know what? That is just fantastic. You feel, you come out of there and you feel like you've just accomplished so much. You're knackered because, you know, at the end of the day, you've, you've worked so hard. But I just enjoy both that idea of getting away and the productivity that you're forced to do to catch up. It's, it's meant a really good uh, week for me. So there we go. There we go, ladies and gentlemen, the ringing endorsement for the four-day week from Justin Twyford of Canada. Write it in your diaries. And get away to the mountains, too. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's the joy is, obviously, if you can compress work, then you have more time to do these sort of meaningful things. Um, it's no good if you just <laughs> collapse in front of Netflix for three days. You need to, you know, get out and do something fun. 
Mm-hmm. What you riding with this week, Stu? Uh, well, I'm, I'm having a load of fun this week, actually. I've got uh, the the Pelican that I was using last week, so the Stressaman uh, 805. Beautiful. Um, and I inked up a pen that I think this is one of the ones where you and I cross over, I think. It's uh, the Platinum 3776. Uh, it's the Chartres, which means it's sort of um, translucent blue. Uh, it's got a rhodium trim, which is kind of my thing. Um, and I filled it with a, it's basically a turquoise ink. It's Coeco, uh, paradise blue. Beautiful. Um, what, what I find with this pen though, is I have to lighten my writing style. Um, the, the platinum will pretty much put up, not the platinum, sorry, the Pelican will put up with anything. I can, I can push hard or I can write light. Uh, the platinum will misbehave if I push down too hard on it. It's just, it needs a gentler touch. Mm. It needs someone like me. Just a soft touch, Stu. That's it. Which you have to do if you're writing with a needle. <laughs> yeah, no, this isn't, uh, this is, a. Uh, not what I would call abroad, but it's what the Japanese would call abroad. So it's definitely a sort of uh, a medium line, uh, unless I push too hard, in which case it's a splodge. <laughs> well, I've I've not been writing with anything with a sharp point this week, Stu. <gasps> Heavens. I've been writing with a pencil, a Blackwing pencil, volume six, which... Uh, I can't remember which core it is, but it's uh, the one that you look at it and it gets dull. Um, I dug it out for a particular project. I had a couple of calculations to do that I was doing and I might need to erase. So I dug it out for that and I loved it. And I've just kept using it. So this has been, I made a bunch of notes for work the other day. Um, yeah, it is absolutely beautiful. I haven't used a pencil in a little while, uh, especially not a, a wood case. Really, really enjoy it. The problem is the, the point on this is we know I like a, a nice sharp point and well, this one, uh, you write a sentence and you've got to resharpen it if you want to keep it mm. really sharp. Yeah. Um, this thing holds a point about as well as a 50 year old man sleeps through the night. <laughs> it, uh, it is, you're, you're getting up, you're having to sharpen it every few paragraphs, but. Um, I've really, really enjoyed the experience of getting back to a pencil. So, you know, if you're, if you're out there and you're, I, I mentioned last week, I wasn't writing a lot. I was feeling a little down about the, the, the pens, try changing it up. Use something like a pencil, use something completely different and boy, just keeps you right back into the joys of stationery. Cool. Um, I, I have to say, I've just. Just uh, this week, completed a big order of black wings for for uh, Nero's, uh, and I was looking through my pencil collection the other day, thinking, mm, "Yeah, maybe I should uh, find find a way to be using one." I might try and sketch something. I've got absolutely no sketching talent at all, but I'm told that if you persevere, you can sort of develop your own passable style. But maybe I'll take a pencil on my trip and perhaps do some ske sketching. There we go. There's an action an action point for me. Oh, suddenly we've become bookworm. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Follow up next week, Stu. All right. <laughs> I'm taking a note as we speak. There we are. Our topic this week, monkeys and pedestals. Because <laughs> everybody knows what that is. <laughs> Great name for a band. Oh, that that's, I think that's our new band name, Stu. Monkeys and pedestals. I'm going to have to go to all the social medias and register that one quickly. Indeed.
Monkeys and Pedestals is an idea that came from Annie Duke, uh, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. We talked about that a little bit last week. But this was a mental model that she uses um, that just really resonated with me and has a catchy title as well. <laughs> so the story that she, she gives of this is that any project you are going to do is like teaching a monkey to juggle while standing on a pedestal. Now, I know that sounds as crazy as it could possibly be. The easy part of that is building the pedestal. That's the part that you know how to do. The hard part is teaching the monkey how to juggle. And in a lot of cases, when we take on a new project or any part of that, we look at the hard part and we know what we like to do, what we can do, what we can do well, the pedestals. And we start building the pedestals. We avoid training the monkey. And the hardest thing to do is training the monkey. The training the monkey is the thing that you don't know how to do. You don't even know if you can do it. And the idea that Annie Duke comes up with is that when you're faced with a complex, ambitious goal, identify the hard thing first, try to solve for that as quickly as possible, and beware of false progress. False progress is building the stuff that you already know how to do. Uh, because, you know, if you're doing that, it feels like you're making progress. If you're, well, if you're me and you're building a website for a project, but you don't have a particular thing that you're trying to do with it. You're just building the, prod, the, the website because that's what you want to do. And then I'll look at putting the content up or whatever it is that I'm going to do. It's kind of the stuff that we do. I see a huge amount of this in business. Uh, Stu, any thoughts on this? Is this something that you've seen? Is this something you've done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, as with, I, I think Annie Duke's writing, uh, she writes to a formula. Um, and the more that you read of her, the more you see uh, how disciplined she is. Um, now, these are all things that I'm, uh, I'm sort of making assumptions from her writing. So I don't, I don't know the, the person at all, but the... She's a poker player. That's where she sort of started out. And I, I believe a very, very competent one. Um, so she sees everything very, very, um, I suppose polemic is one way of saying it. It's it's very definite. There's black and there's white. There's win and there's lose. Uh, there's good and there's not good. And this model is very much in that mold. You know, her her sort of approach to almost everything, I think, is to, okay, let's be rational about this, let's look at that, let's look at this, what's the major issue here, right? Therefore, the best way to tackle these things is to work out if you can train the monkey. If you can't train the monkey, don't worry about the pedestals. Um, and I think that's great if you're buying into this whole sort of, you know, we must all be productive for 18 hours a day and then sleep for six. Um, I'm, I'm, there's a part of me that says, well, hang on, there are lots of pedestals that have, have grown up to be far more important than the monkey that was going to go on them. 
um, and people have stumbled into into greatness and art, um, and all of the things that she categorizes as as negatives of building the pedestal aren't necessarily negative. They they're negative to the goal of getting your monkey on the pedestal. If you haven't trained the monkey, the pedestal is pointless. But that pedestal might turn out to be far more interesting than the monkey ever would have been. Mm. Um, and some people only discover those things as they do them. And I think you're like that to a certain extent. I'm thinking of people like Austin Cleon and the way that he looks at, uh, at problems and starts, you know, noodling on things. Uh, TJ, um, our friend TJ Cosgrove, does, he's forever noodling on things disappearing down little rabbit holes and coming out with things that um, he had no idea he was looking to discover. And I think there is something nice about that. In in the cold, hard business world, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I've seen it a million and one times, and I've been guilty of wanting to do it. Um, you know, whenever I get excited about a new project, the, the first things that get done are the ones that cost money, which is the exact opposite of what you should do. Um, it's, you know, okay, well, I'll buy this and I'll buy that and I'll buy this and then everything will be great. Well, no, kind of no. You need to refine the idea, work out how the idea is going to work, maybe test it on a market, test it with some people. Um, then maybe you can start spending money rather than spending all the money and go, oh, didn't work. Oh, well, never mind. Um, but I got a nice toy out of this. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a whole point that we come to. There Steve. is a lot of that. I need this new computer because I'm doing this new project. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I suppose the great example that often gets talked about is, oh, I want to start a podcast. Right. Where can I spend $500 on a, on a microphone? Where actually that's not what you need to do. What you need to do is record a podcast and see, A, if you enjoy it. B, if the person you do it with, if you're doing it with someone else, enjoys it. Um, C, if you can edit it. D, if you can work out how to put it out. And E, if anybody would like it. Um, and if you record that, uh, now, now, Justin, sit down on your mobile phone, that's okay. You'll very quickly get someone like Justin explaining to you that, you know, audio-wise, that's not good enough. But the reality is you need to work out if there's you've got something to say that people want to listen to or, or if you're bothered whether they listen. <laughs> I suppose it's equally important. But, um, yeah, I, I see it a lot in business. I have seen it in business where there's been a temptation to say, okay, well, if we do this, this, and this, then that will naturally happen. Um, generally speaking, that's not how business works in my experience. Yeah, this, this really resonated for me because, well, let's face it, I've worked for large international companies and, oh, do I see this all the time? Um, you know, accounting systems, IT systems, the infrastructure behind things. We're going to do this learning platform and that learning platform and, oof, um, Pedestal building is a real thing. Uh, you get new leadership in a company and the first thing they do is make a structure change. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen huge, huge wastes of time and efforts and things like this. I know one large company back in the 90s um, put in an SAP system, which if you're, if you're around systems in those days, that was the big boy. Um, it was expensive. It was complicated. It was a multi-year process. This was going to fix everything that was wrong with the business. 
Um, and they spent millions and millions of dollars on this. Um, and they put it in, realized it didn't actually fit and immediately started looking for a replacement for it. So yes, it's, it's kind of a silly and an analogy. Um, our performance review process in so many ways is structured in business to build pedestals because you're making progresses, you're hitting targets, you're, you're putting things up. If you're trying to train the monkey, you're often spinning your wheels. You're trying things that don't stick. You're, you're solving problems and solving problems sometimes takes time. It takes money. It takes experimentation. And that is not conducive to a lot of organizations that have metrics and uh, performance reviews and all of those things, you know, uh, you've, you've got a Gantt chart that uh, shows you where you need to be at what time. And I think this is really something in traditional business. I, I do think the Silicon Valley approach of moving fast and breaking things does look at this of, of training the monkey first. Uh, but I think it's still often at odds with a lot of corporate America, which is a lot more cautious, a lot more, uh, slow in its adoption. Um, and this, this, this analogy, it's silly, but it's unforgettable. And I thought for me, it just really resonated, you know, perhaps a perfectionist in me, the lack of hum in your ears right now is, well, me. Um, been a perfectionist and not doing what Stu said and recording a podcast on my phone. I, yeah, I spent the money on the microphone first and the editing tools and all the rest of that, just so I can get something that I'm proud of, but I didn't test the market first. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, any examples in, in corporate that you can think of? I know you were sort of leading corporate, but, um, you've also in the past worked for other people. Have you seen any of this do in, in corporate, well, corporate Europe, corporate Britain? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, um, the, I mean, the big one in financial services when I started in it, which was, you know, way back when God was a wee boy, um, in 1990, somewhere around there, um, was that you know cash was dead um and certainly now looking back from sort of 2023 there's less cash used um in sort of day-to-day -day life in, in parts of europe than than there was but it's certainly not dead um i mean in fact there are still plenty of places here that that the only currency is cash you go to them with an apple watch or a piece of plastic and it'll just laugh at you um and sort of corporate I think the corporate world had decided, look, isn't this great? We'll just get rid of cash um, and all of the overhead that goes with it, you know, managing it and, you know, storing it and guarding it. We'll just get rid of it all. Everything will just be digital and be plastic. It's amazing. It's brilliant. Let's, let's optimize all our systems for that. Um, and the entire world or the vast majority of it went, no, no, we're kind of good with cash, actually. Uh, we, we, we still like it uh, because it never fails. Um, it doesn't go offline. It doesn't run out of battery. Doesn't have a server failure. All of which used to happen quite a lot in the nineties and beyond. Um, and it was very much you saw banks investing enormous sums of money. It didn't really matter because it was all their customers' money anyway. But um, in these these huge digital systems, where they saw a future of 
great returns because they would only have three members of staff running the whole thing. But there was no public buy-in for it. Um, certainly, and you can make your own, draw your own conclusions, but certainly countries like Italy are a long way from moving away from cash. Um, and when I was up in Scandinavia a few years ago, which is very close to being cash-free, um, I still made very good friends with a lot of bars and restaurants by saying, oh, I've got this stuff called cash. Do you still accept it? And their little faces lit up, bless them. Um, so uh, you do see it. I was talking to a guy on the golf course the other day who is currently involved in project managing the rollout of an Oracle system. Oh, this is a perfect time for building a pedestal. Well, you would know better than I what Oracle is. As far as I understand it, to to everybody on this uh, this discussion that isn't Justin, it's just a really big database. Um, and the budget was $100 million for the implementation of rolling out this Oracle system, which was enough to give me pause for thought, um, because I thought, you know, I could do a lot of really good stuff with $100 million that didn't involve buying a database. But anyway, uh, at the time we were chatting, it was uh, it was supposed to be a two-year project. It was now in its fifth year. Uh, they were nowhere near finishing. It had run to $190 million so far. And he said, oh, there's no way they'll get it done without spending another $200. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is the ideal case for building a pedestal and not training the monkey. I'm like, for a database. And he went, well, yeah, sort of. It's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> mm, okay. Not in my world, it isn't. <laughs> that is crazy. But yeah, that's. I think that is exactly what I've seen in my past that companies do. And that's why this idea really just hit home for me. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm... I, I guess I'm kind of there too. You know, I, I, I know if I come up with a project, first thing you want to do is build the website for it, you know? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of there a little bit as well, you know, spend some money on it, do this, do that. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of this part that is so obvious yet kind of slaps you in the face when you actually stop and think about it and go, Oh, um, now as, as a business owner, what did you have in place in terms of employee review systems that would facilitate people well training the monkey compared to just pedestal building um well i mean i see quite a lot of this um, um i i work with one client who uh, one of their values so you know this is right at the sort of heart of what the company does is that employees are to own their own development um and you know uh line my consultancy business used to be a training business so you know, I, I don't want to hear that sort of stuff from corporates so i i challenge that so so, so what does that mean now what we provide uh you know training this training that and they have a sort of grading system um where you can you can kind of graduate through through different in-house courses but you're not sort of put on these courses. You have to elect to do them. Um, I went, okay. I said, but does that not mean that you end up with, with quite a lot of people who are not trained as, as you would like them to be? 
Not really, because we fire them. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> kind of missing the point there, I think, but you know. All right. Okay, cool. And I said, but what about, you know, let's say me, I've just, uh, you know, a couple of years ago decided I was going to do an MBA. What about if I was working for you, would, would you fund that? And we would consider it. Um, depending on who you were and, you know, your role and all that stuff. Like, okay, I can see some positive sides of this. And I said, but so do you not have sort of um, educational profiles or training profiles, if you like, that you you want to see in certain roles? Uh, and they said, well, yes, in certain specialised roles, but we expect the employee to drive that. And I'm still not very comfortable. It sounds very much like a, a cop-out to me. Um, and, uh, same, same company is doing a vast amount of work at the moment in, uh, in systems development. It's not Oracle, but it's close. Um, and they're, they're building it from the ground up. Um, they're trying to incorporate all sorts of complex transaction types, um, sort of marketing, uh, you know, you, you would have heard this before, Justin, one system to rule them all. You know, it's, we're not going to buy all these bespoke things. We've got this, our thing, and it does everything we need. Um, and I've never, ever seen that work. $100 million later and you have Slack. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because within six months, what, what happens is that your business needs something entirely different from the thing that you ask the developers to make. And the developers turn around and go, well, you didn't ask us to make that. And you go, well, I'm asking you to make it now. And they go, great, let's do a new project plan, new budget. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I I do see it, and I think it's it's kind of inevitable because, as you say, sometimes it works out. Um, Slack worked out that way um, from being I, I forget the example, but it was something entirely different. Was it a game? <laughs> something that... Was it was it the yeah? I think it was the game, and it was the internal communication tool for a game that went nowhere. Yeah. And uh, eventually somebody kind of looked at it and said, hey, we've built this really cool thing for us to use. Let's try building it out for an outward appearance. And it, it worked. Mm. Um, and, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I, again, I think, you know, implementing this $100 million Oracle system, you're not going to end up with something that you can, well, necessarily turn outwards it's probably something well as as your example showed it was something for the business three years ago that was what they identified at that point if you're telling me business pre-covid was different to or it, it the business pre-covid is exactly the same as business post-covid i'm not sure what business you're in yeah yeah, exactly. I mean, with uh, with with my own businesses, when we were developing uh, sort of divisions and new skill sets, I, I, I think we were very much people first. So, um, as compliance, compliance is the sort of the massive growth function within within finance, um, and you can trace it all back to to nine eleven and, and then uh, the laws that the Americans passed, the Patriot Act. Um, all of that got really, really sort of hot uh, from that time onwards and became a massive issue for anybody in financial services, which was for us kind of bad news because we were brand new into financial services at the time. Um, so we then, the first, the first step for us around this whole new discipline was, uh, well, I lost the toss. 
So uh, my business partner and I were dividing up the the functions of the business. Uh, he was going to get finance because you know he's he's that way. I was going to get operations because that's my my expertise. Um, but the other ones were up for grabs, and I lost I lost the toss and got compliance. Um, and so immediately was sent off to go and learn what that meant. And so we found uh, the, the sort of biggest organization in the UK that gave training in this area uh, and sent me off to get trained to understand it all. Um, we got in touch with all the, you know, the regulators and all that. And I just became a pest and spoke to them all. And so, you know, what, what is it you want companies to do? And at the time they were pretty much going, we're not quite sure. We're kind of working it out. Okay, let's, let's do that together. Um, and then from there, I realized what sort of skills I would need in the team to be able to deliver that um, and find the people and gave the people the training. And then from there, got them to drive the system side of things and the investment side of things and the pedestals that these monkeys needed to sit on, if you want to take the, <laughs> the thing to its extreme. Um, and I think that was the right way. I, I, again, I think we stumbled into it more than sort of decided it but um business of any type moves so fast now i think the reason that you'll see these massive companies what do you call them sap oracle these i think the reason that we'll see them struggle is because they are unable to be nimble enough to provide solutions for companies that are that are, are moving moving markets right now oh. yeah i completely agree you know, even though, again, like Stu, he's in compliance. I, I'm in from the accounting side. There are rules and regulations. But just looking at the changes in things, you know, moving to online systems and remote databases. You know, in the, in the old days, we used to have uh, computers in the computer room that needed to be backed up and uh, maintained. And that, things move slowly. Things now are so quick compared to what they used to be. I, I think this is kind of an interesting idea. It certainly um, is obvious if you really stop and think about it, but I'm not sure we do. <laughs> and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it. Any takeaways from this one, Stu? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, as I said before, I think uh, pedestal building is not necessarily bad, um, but beware the avoidance pedestal, which is um, the one that I think she talks about in the book and that most struck me was the, that tunnel um, in California mm. where to avoid dealing with the problem of how do we build a massive tunnel under a range of mountains, uh, they decided to start building lines either side of the mountains, completely pointless lines that would never connect. And I think that's the avoidance pedestal. And it, those are the ones that I think are dangerous for, for, for a business or indeed for, for your own productivity is to start building the pedestals instead of addressing how you're going to train the monkey. Yeah. Uh, mine, I think, is very similar to yours, Stu. Uh, mine is, well, it's common sense, really. Do the hardest things first. Uh, a great takeaway, a great reminder. I don't, I don't think it's a life-changing takeaway, but the idea is a great reminder for me to come away from this section of the book. All right, where can people find you on the interweb this week, Stu? You you posted something, so uh, go ahead. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, you can find uh, you can find my musings on uh, life, the universe, and everything um, at stuartlennon.com. Um, my 
anti-money laundering consultancy business. You can find me on all the socials uh, on a, a variety of Lime Consult or Lime Consulting or Lime Consulting 2023, and even on LinkedIn. I'm just such a corporate cobra. Um, more interestingly, if you like really nice stationery, check out neurosnotes.co.uk, which I think you will see an explosion of social media activity from them. Uh, next month too. It's very exciting. And before I hand over to Justin to find out where you can find him, just want to say happy birthday, TJ. He sent a picture of uh, him and his wife and they both look really, really happy. I'm not sure where his daughter was, but uh, yeah. Happy birthday, TJ. Hope you have a fantastic day. All right, Justin, where can people find you? Well, uh, you can find well i'm not writing as much as Stu on justintwyford.com you can find the link to my stuff uh, you can find me on youtube if you want to see my hot date with the princess um i've took a video of it so you'll be able to see what the canadian wilderness and the mountains look like i was exploring it was fun uh you can contact both of us stationary adjacent at gmail.com Please take a moment to like a review us on your podcast, Catch Your Choice. We really do appreciate your recommendations to your friends and colleagues. We're off next week, though, Stu. You're traveling. We are indeed. I'm, I'm off, off to Blighty. Oh, lovely. Hello. Well, now that you've got the big case, you can take your microphone. Steady. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, we will be back in two weeks where on our topic is going to be identity. Until then, goodbye. And stay productive. Yes, us.